Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast. Today I have for your delectation and delight best-selling author Jay Heinrichs. He is the author of a fabulous book called Thank You for Arguing. Jay, welcome. Thanks, Marcus. So Jay's specialist subject is rhetoric. So Jay, let's start with what is rhetoric? Well, the easy answer is rhetoric is the art of persuasion. Slightly longer answer, it's a way to get people to like and trust you. It's the art of leadership. It's also how to read an audience and what you're going to do with it. So in other words, it's the way that you can make your way through the world. Excellent. So before we go into all that gory detail, which I know the audience will be chomping at the bit for, Do you mind giving us 60 to 90 seconds on how you became an expert in rhetoric? Well, I was a journalist for years. I started out in Washington, D.C., covering the Hill, getting very interested in the journalistic side of politics. I then became a manager at a bunch of magazines and reached my level of incompetence. My level of incompetence had to do with my ability to manage other people. I ended up at a company where I oversaw a bunch of magazines and books and had some 80 people under me. And while I could make my numbers in terms of, you know, what we were selling and the profit we were were making, the CEO would literally make fun of me in meetings. I knew that there was, I was not fitting in somehow to the corporate life. And I wondered what I was doing wrong. Sometime before that, though, I had stumbled into something an Ivy League library. I happened to be working at Dartmouth College, an Ivy League university at the time. And I was bored in my job wandering through the stacks. And I, I stumbled upon a book written by John Quincy Adams. It was a series of lectures by this future president of the United States who introduced me to this art of rhetoric and occurred to me, even back then, maybe this is something that's missing from my own life. And I'll tell you what, I ended up reading everything John Quincy Adams told me to read, interviewed rhetoricians around the world, started doing research in linguistics and neurobiology and all that, and discovered that this was an ancient art that was used to do everything from create democracy, Adam Smith, The philosopher of capitalism was a rhetoric professor at Oxford. All of the American founders had studied rhetoric. And I discovered that this was not just missing from my life, but from our societies as well. And it was a key set of tools that I personally could use maybe to manage better. So tell me this, what are the four most common questions you get asked about rhetoric and its application? I'll tell you the number one thing I hear is, how do I take the anger out of an argument? How do I make it so that we both don't blow up at each other? We're a very very well-armed nation, so that's a really good question. The answer is really interesting. Rhetoric provides it. That's the number one question I get. You want to hear some others, a couple others? Absolutely. You had mentioned this in our private conversation earlier, Marcus. How do I argue with an idiot? That's another really good question. And by the way, something I hope we can get back to is who am I really arguing with is the answer I often give. Who are you? Who do you think you're arguing with? Is it the idiot or anyone else who might be listening in? Another question, why don't people pay enough attention to the facts? And I've got a really interesting contrarian answer from the philosopher Aristotle, the guy who invented logic as we know it. And then finally, I get a lot of salespeople asking me, 
what are the secrets to making a sale? And again, rhetoric can help with that. Okay, well, let's start with Aristotle. He's too grand and uh, fabulous a figure to ignore. So what was his contrarian perspective? Remember that this is the guy who taught us logic, or what we think of as logic, of fallacies and how to put together a rational argument. Aristotle wrote the book on rhetoric. It was probably the last book he wrote after he wrote about ethics and politics and all the, all the stuff having to do with human nature. Rhetoric was the last thing he wrote because I think it was the summary of all his wisdom. And what he said, and he sounded very sad when he wrote this, that because of our sorry human nature, that's his words, not mine, <laughs> logic actually does not persuade very well. Instead, what he said persuaded was what he called ethos or ethos, which is what the audience thinks of your character. Do they trust you? Do they like you and think that you're part of their tribe somehow? Do they consider you a leader? He said that these are the traits that make people follow you, and they are much more powerful than logic itself. So the simple rule is that people buy from people who they either respect or feel like they're part of their in-tribe, and they buy emotionally, not intellectually. Yes. The emotion really stems from their reaction to the character of the person. So Aristotle described three basic tools of rhetoric, the art of persuasion. He called them, because he was Greek, ethos, pathos, and logos. Ethos is your brand, your character as it's expressed to an audience. Pathos is emotion, which is what is the mood your audience is in and how can you change that? And finally, logos is not really so much formal logic. I mean, Aristotle redefined this even then. It really has to do not so much with the facts or how logical you truly are, but your audience's beliefs and expectations. What do they think is true and what do they think is going to happen? If you can combine all these traits and it takes some practice to do it, you can be a persuasive person, even if it doesn't come naturally. So how does this tie to Cicero's speech outline then, or doesn't it? Well, it does, very much so. So Cicero, who according to himself was the most articulate orator in world history. <laughs> he could have run for president. Yeah, he didn't suffer from a, a sorry ego, or maybe he did. He, he, uh, he, he basically, he came up with like a seven-part outline. But what it basically comes down to is what order you argue in terms of logic, emotion, and character. And he said, character comes first. Ethos comes first. So establish the trust with your audience. Get them to like you. Make them feel as if you're a slightly improved version of themselves. The next thing you go after is you tell your story and you do that through logos. That has to do with speaking in terms of what the audience thinks is to their advantage. You know, what will be good for them? And then finally, you at the very end, you do what he called a peroration, which is where you get a little bit emotional and you get people charged up for whatever action you want the audience to take. So ethos first, logos second, pathos third. And by the way, that works in a job interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think people will be interested in your thoughts on that. I know that one of the things that you talk about in your book is how it's important that you align your CV or your resume 
in terms of the values that you see a company represent. Can you go into a little bit of detail about that? Because I think that would be a very useful tip. I've found it useful personally. I suggest to people that they do a kind of analysis of their resume according to their ethos. Because really, their resume is a a sales document for yourself, obviously. So you're in your brand, and your brand is your ethos. So the three qualities of an ethos described by Aristotle, and I, I believe that they're absolutely true. A whole lot of social science research has gone behind proving what Aristotle writes here. So the three characteristics you want to portray are what I call craft, caring, and cause. He had Greek names for him, but we can just call them craft, caring, and cause. Your craft is whether you know your stuff. Do you have the book learning or educational background? But also, are you, do you have the experience to solve particular problems, especially the problems that your employer is facing? That's craft. Caring has to do with whether you are just in this for yourself. And obviously you are. <laughs> You're applying to, for a job that will make you money. But more importantly, what good can you do the company? Do you understand what their needs are? rather than just expressing your need for a job. Thirdly, and this can be the most powerful of all, Aristotle called this arete or virtue. I call it cause, which is that what's your higher calling for this? What do you really care about? So if you are applying for a teaching job at a school, are you interested only in the subject you're teaching or are you interested in what it will do to the character of the children? If you're applying to a job in, say, insurance sales, Are you just out to make a buck selling insurance as the greatest salesperson in the world? Or are you really interested in what the insurance can do for the people themselves? In other words, you want that future employer to think that you're a good person and that you meet and also you tend to follow the values that your employer holds most closely. So that's craft, caring, and cause. And if you can analyze your resume along those lines, you'll actually have a better resume. Very interesting and highly practical. We talked about how do you convince an idiot? Uh, I'll be kinder. How do you convince someone whose opinion differs from yours using rhetoric? There are several things you need to think about when you enter into a difficult conversation of any kind. And let's say politics, which is (laughs) these days one of the more difficult conversations we tend to have a lot in social media and live as well. One is, what's your real goal here? Do you really think that you can convince this person to vote the opposite way they vote from the way they voted last time? In other words, how persuadable are they? Is your goal to persuade them? If not, maybe your goal should be a relationship, the relationship itself. Do you just want to have friends? Or would you rather be the lonely person who's always right? Another thing to think about is, the person you're speaking to, is that the person you're really trying to persuade or are there other people listening in? And in social media, there always are, right? I mean, it could be Russia, but it could also be your friends on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. So who are you really convincing? And often the persuadable audience is not the person you're actually talking directly to. I mean, look at every presidential debate. They're not trying to convince each other. They're speaking to a larger audience. And so those things to think about will allow you then to choose the tools you're going to choose. The other thing I'm sure we're going to talk about, Marcus, is 
what tense am I speaking in? How is this conversation going? And we probably should get to that at some point, shouldn't we? Well, I love the way that you brought the future tense into this, almost as if you knew what you were doing. But I did spot it, so I'm feeling quite smug. So that's me talking in the present tense. Actually, I use past and present. So I'm curious, tell me about tense. What does the past, present, or what do past, present, and future tense tell the listener and ourselves about our intent? And when should we use each tense? All right, we need to get slightly in the weeds here of rhetoric and go back to my man, Aristotle. Again, a whole lot of research has been done around this. So it's not, this is not just, you know, 3,000 year old ancient history here. So Aristotle described three kinds of rhetoric based on what tense they affect or what uh, tense they actually occur in in expression. So the past tense is the language of what he called forensics, because it has to do with forensics, crime and punishment. You look at law and order, that whole script is written in the past tense. It has to do with crimes that were committed and what we're going to do about it. And I'll get back to that a little bit, just quick summary here. Aristotle described the present tense in terms of what he called demonstrative rhetoric. It's also called sermonic rhetoric because it's the language of sermons. It has to do with values of what's good and what's bad and who's good and who's bad. So sermonic rhetoric takes place in the present tense because it's who we are as a people and who the bad people are. The future tense was Aristotle's favorite. He called it political rhetoric. He also called it deliberative rhetoric. It's the language of choices that affect the future. So if you're talking about what's the advantage of the audience in the future, you're in deliberative rhetoric. And that should be the rhetoric of politics. Now, unfortunately, most political rhetoric these days happens to speak in terms of the past tense, what horrible things the candidate did in the past and why we should lock her up. The present tense has to do with values and what a horrible person the opponent is. And the future tense has to do with what choices we're going to make to fix what's wrong with a country and make for a better future for our nation or company or whatever it is we're talking about. Now, if I can follow up a little bit with an anecdote. My son, when he was 15 years old, was your typical wise-ass teenage son and also someone who is kind of clueless when it came to household supplies. I found my... Can can I I just stop you there for the audience? Have you noticed the tense that Jay used to judge his son? (laughs) Yes, very good (laughs) description of him. Not only that, but I I was going with the beliefs of most audiences, anyone who's been a, the parent of a teenager may sympathize with me when I say wise-ass teenager. I, I have three. <laughs> How old? 14, 17, and 18. Perfect. So you know just what I'm talking about here. Mm. <laughs> well, so I should say great kid who's now in his 30s and well past the teenage stage. I found myself in the bathroom wearing nothing but a towel first thing in the morning trying to brush my teeth and discovering that the toothpaste was entirely dry. So I, knowing who the likely culprit was, I shouted through the closed door of the bathroom, George, my son's name, who used up all the toothpaste. And I heard this sarcastic voice on the other side saying, that's not the point, is it, dad? The point is, 
how are we going to keep this from happening again? Now, I had said for it, he learned rhetoric as I was learning because I talked about nothing else while I was researching my book. Thanks for, for arguing. And I didn't realize he'd actually been listening to me all this time. I had said one of the best ways to get yourself out of trouble, if you actually did commit a crime like using up the toothpaste, was to switch the tense to the future where no crime has been committed yet and where you can solve things, you can fix things. He was being sarcastic. He was making fun of me. Nonetheless, I was kind of excited that he clearly had been listening all this time. So I said to him, all right, George, you win. Another great technique, by the way, letting the other person win on points. Will you please now just go get me some toothpaste? And my son went down to our freezing basement. We live almost near the Canadian border in New Hampshire. It gets cold in the wintertime. He went down the basement and retrieved a tube of toothpaste, which I consider to be a great triumph of parental persuasion, getting my son willingly to run an errand. Now, the interesting thing is he switched the tense. He made me laugh. So he switched, he changed the mood. He got himself out of trouble. And I got a guy to reach a teenager to retrieve toothpaste. To this day, he thinks he won the argument because I told him he did. And I believe I won because I got action out of a teenager. Has he read your book yet? Has he read your book? Yes, he has. I think he probably read just the parts where I wrote about him. (laughs) (laughs) Then he knows. (laughs) Yes. Well, and you know, I wrote in the book, no, George, I win. And of course he says, you know, that's so unfair. And of course I've told him he can write his own book someday. He hasn't yet. Fair went out the window when your mum was dishing out (laughs) M&Ms. You know, the interesting thing about that is that sums up what happens when rhetoric works at its best. People don't get angry. Now, here's the other thing. What if I had used these other tenses? What if I had said, George, you know, you used up all the toothpaste. We're going to have to figure out how to punish you for that. That's forensics, which has to do with something that happened in the past tense and what kind of punishment we need to exact on this criminal. If I had said, now, George, a good son would be more considerate and not use up all the toothpaste. You can imagine how a teenager would respond to that, right? (laughs) At least defensively. Instead, he immediately switched to the solution to the problem. And, you know, what we ended up getting was everybody got what they wanted and everybody was in a good mood. That it rarely happens and it's rarely happened to me. (laughs) That's why I use this example. But that being said, I think that's the ideal we should all strive for when it comes to rhetoric. So let's take this in the context of business. I know that you write in the book about how you can get people to be comfortable with you, human being to human being, and for them to warm to you. Do you mind talking to me a, a little bit about that? Again, you know, the same principles that work in daily life at, at home can work in the office as well, with a difference being your style may be a little different. You may not want to treat anybody who is below you in rank as underlings. These days, we're not families so much as teams, which is, requires somewhat different behavior. Here's the thing to get yourself to be liked and trusted. Go back to the qualities of ethos or ethos. Are you proving you know what you're doing? Are you speaking to problems? I mean, that's the biggest thing about craft. Are you solving particular problems? 
And are you speaking in terms of people's personalities or the problem itself? That's how your craft can get into play here. Secondly, when it comes to your ability to express your uh, caring, which is also described as disinterest, are you concerned about how other people are doing and are you enabling them? Are you helping them rather than trying to extract work out, out of them? And this is true of people above you as well as people you know, at the same level as you in rank. And then finally, are you keeping your eyes on the prize? What is your, your real goal for what you're doing on a daily basis? And can you remind people of that? That's caring, craft, and cause within a business setting. Again, thinking in terms of tense is really important. A lot of times when things get a little rough in the office, people will remind you of a time you screwed up. Or if you propose something, they'll tell you why that didn't work or why we've always been doing things this way. Now, those are signs that people are in the wrong rhetoric. If they say that didn't work before or you screwed that up before, that's forensic rhetoric. And you want to switch away to the future saying, let's talk about how we're going to do it this time. Another thing is when people are say, say we always did it this way when you're um, trying to get, get a change in an organization or a company, it's really best to say, to understand that that's tribal rhetoric. That's what sermonic rhetoric, present tense rhetoric is all about, good people and bad people. So we've always done it this way as a way of saying, this is who we are. So you can say, is this what we want to be? That's how you can switch the tense there. Is this who we really should be? A company that just does the same thing all the time. Let's talk about how we're going to fix particular problems and take advantage of certain opportunities. And that's switching to the future as well. There are many other tools, but I like to focus on the ones that are easiest to learn at a time like this. So we're seeing an awful lot. At the time of recording, this is week 14, 15 of the lockdown. We're seeing a second surge. There's the US election looming in three months. There's upheaval, social unrest. There's volatility. There's uncertainty, there's complexity, there's ambiguity. And what we're seeing all over the world is uh, people are suffering from high level of uh, increased and sustained stress. So what can we do in order to help bring that stress level down in the context of the people that we work with closely or family? I'm so glad you asked that question because I am working on my next book based on rhetorical principles on the principle of Kairos. Kairos is the art of opportunity, of when to spot an opportunity, when to take advantage of it, and how to know whether you suit that opportunity. And one of the things I've found in my research, and I've done a whole lot of business research for this because this is going to be a business-oriented book, is that the greatest opportunities come at times of greatest crisis. Now, yes, people are suffering and we can get to that. But at the same time, you know that there are some people who are going to be fabulously wealthy after we get past the pandemic era. Just as, you know, if you look at past pand pandemics and how they've changed society, you go way back to the bubonic plague in the 13th and 14th centuries. They changed everything. That's what created the Enlightenment. 
that's what brought about a revival of rhetoric, the origins of capitalism and and Republican democracy, all the things that we consider you know, the benefits of the Enlightenment today happened because we went through this existential crisis. We're in one now. So two things to think about. One is what good can come out of this? Like, how are we going to change? One is we're operating a lot more remotely. How do we improve the way you and I are talking right now? Is there something better than Zoom? While we're Zooming, are there certain ways we should be doing it? Manners of behavior, the ways we use our equipment. Are there opportunities in the way we do that? Now, I find that because I do a lot of videos for students in high schools, I've never been in more demand. So I'm already kind of benefiting from this in a way. Now, the other thing is, getting past ourself, my, my personal selfishness here, is think about what I call your time health. So if you look at your attitudes toward the past, present, and future. If you are lapsing in the nostalgic right now, assuming that the past was somehow better than the present, there's something wrong with your past and and your attitude toward it. Yes, you might've been healthier back then. Yes, you might've had a job and you don't have one now. Clearly, your past may have actually been better. But is there a way to interpret the past to help you right now? Now look at your present. Are you seeing enemies all around you? Are you seeing constant threats? Or are you dealing with your personal health right now and on a day-to-day basis, getting into some good habits? Or are you just drinking every evening like most of us, me included? (laughs) Most importantly, look at your future. Is the future a threat? Or is it something that you can do to seize the opportunities that come along and improve yourself in a way that will make the future be to your advantage. As all of that, past, present, and future, is there a way that you can help people who are in greater need than you? And I think it all starts with your attitude toward those tenses. That's what I call time health. Like, are you taking care of the way you pay attention to the tenses? If you are, I guarantee you, you'll be in better shape to deal with the, the opportunities and threats that we have right now that are facing us. Well, to build on these points, first of all, after the plague came the Renaissance. And from great crises, absolutely the wonderful things do happen, although there is a huge human cost and fallout. But how you react, how you respond to the situation will determine your outcome. Second thing is that if we look at how you choose to behave, As a social species, what I've derived enormous satisfaction from is raising my game uh, in terms of my contribution to the people I can help, whether I get paid or not during this period. And that has given me an enormous amount of resilience because I've got to be honest with you, I don't think I've had a period in my life where my level of intellectual stimulation or sense of achievement has even come close to this period, largely because of the contribution I've been able to make. And I think what's interesting, really interesting here, is how what you've just described actually models uh, or mirrors a couple of models in the tradition of transactional analysis. If you are backward-looking, you come to a problem or a situation with negative preferences, 
negative expectations and bring prejudices, prejudgments to the situation and you view the reality through that lens, chances are you will re uh, react emotionally. And that's a place called the drama triangle. Whereas if you look forward and you have positive expectations, you bring positive preferences and you filter your reality through that lens, that's called the winner's triangle, and then you have a rational response. So now you're drawing on Logos whilst you're also operating from a position which instead of being the victim, the persecutor, or the rescuer, you are vulnerable, you're nurturing and empathic, and you're assertive. And in terms of ego states, you go from the critical parent, the adaptive child, to the adult and the natural child and the nurturing parent. And uh, as a result of that, the same situation offers promise. It offers growth potential as opposed to everything's broken. And people who tend to operate from that drama triangle are very brittle. And they suffer, they suffer a, a lot of self-induced hardship because of the narrative that's running through their head. Your thoughts on that? Oh, I love that. And what you've talked about, it, much of that is unfamiliar to me. But as you were talking, I found myself translating uh, some of your terms into rhetoric. When you talk about brittleness, for example, a lot of what becomes brittle in a rhetorical argument in your own brain, as well as with others, is the failure to, to properly frame the argument. And framing is something we haven't talked about, but framing has to do with how you define a particular issue. So I just framed the pandemic in terms of opportunity, which sounds kind of cynical and selfish, but it doesn't have to be. For instance, I, most of my consulting work, work, which had to do with a whole lot of travel, I was traveling about 40% of the time, has dried up, allowing me, like you, to spend a whole lot more time with research and thinking and reading and great conversations. I also have found, because I can't get paid for stuff, I have a whole lot more time to spend on other people. And my big cause is education, of teaching high school students rhetoric which is, you know, it's the fastest growing discipline in education right now. And so it's a great opportunity for me to kind of push that particular cause and allow people to become better citizens. I feel that this is the greatest good I can do right now since I don't know anything about medicine. In terms of how I am and, and how adult that makes me, what I think is, is what rhetoricians call seizing a chirotic moment. And a chirotic moment has to do with a time of change or flux and how you deal with that. And in order to deal with a time of great change and, and a time of crisis at the time of greatest change, of course, uh, greater even than times of technological change is a time when things are really going south. It, the important thing there is to frame the meaning of that change to understand that we're going through a change, that yes, things are bad, not being all Pollyannish about it, but at the same time to say, what needs to be fixed? And more importantly, is there a way to fix things or take advantage of things to create a future that could not exist without that crisis? That is thinking chirotically. 
it's an area within rhetoric that actually has been undercovered, which is why I'm so excited to be doing the research I'm doing right now. Another opportunity I wouldn't have if I was traveling so much. This is really fascinating. If, If you had the golden ticket and you could go back to that time where you were managing teams and you knew then what you know now, what alternative choices would you have made because you'd have framed things differently? That's such a great question. So if rhetoric had a motto, it would be, it's not about you. (laughs) Rhetoric. (laughs) If only I'd learned that. Even today, that would be helpful. Um, A long time ago. (laughs) Going back to my, you know, my managerial self, I was actually a really good recruiter. That was probably my best skill. I hired the best people and knew how to do it. What I failed to do was manage them because I thought that managing them meant managing them, <laughs> not, not enabling them. So I would, you know, I would tell them what to do. I'd get excited about the ideas that I had. And I'd say, you know, like John Belushi in, in Animal House, where he says, you know, let's go. And he runs out of the room and nobody follows him. That was me as a manager. Like I expected people to get excited about things simply because I was and because I gave orders that I expected people to carry out. Now, what rhetoric would have taught me earlier on was the attitude that your greatest force multiplier is your ability to make people believe that the decisions you want are their decisions and they have to be based on their own beliefs and expectations. You need to start there. Those are your biggest tools. Greater than the skills of the people you hired are their beliefs and expectations and your ability to use them as fuel to carry out the goals you want for your organization. Say that again, because that was profound. As a recruiter, I believe that skills came first. And of course, they're hugely important, but skills aren't going to carry out the goals of your organization. Enabling people and exciting them about the use of those skills in the decisions you want requires them to use their own beliefs and expectations to make them believe that their own decisions are your decisions. In other words, you have to make them feel as if they've actuated their own decisions. So it's not about you, it's about your beliefs, the beliefs and audiences of the people you work with. That's more important than their skills. Or did I just make that more confusing? <laughs> no, I that. So a great manager will recruit well and then get the best out of their people by helping them buy into the vision and help them think that they are executing on their ideas by encouraging them to give input and take decisions and be able to delegate that responsibility by having enough trust in them to allow them to fail, but not let the operation or the idea or the business fail and have them take ownership of their actions so that you end up with the result that you want without pressure. So you're falling away from them and letting them fall towards you rather than pushing. That is beautifully said, better certainly than I did. I would add this. 
in order for all of that to happen, for you to fall away and have these self-actuated people enabling their own decisions with the belief that they're making decisions on their own, in order for that to happen, you have to persuade the team. You can't just simply cheerlead. That's not going to work. You have to act on their own beliefs and expectations, and this may have to be on an individual basis. You have to understand your audience, and your audience in this case is the team of people you're working with. So you have to know what do they believe, what do they expect, what do they value, what do they want in their own career. The greatest thing I would say when I hired people, and I do it the day I hired them, I would say more important than this company is your career. I want to know the moment you think your career isn't moving forward because I'll do everything I can to help you, including writing you an enthusiastic letter of recommendation for you to work for the competition. Instantly, I'd get loyalty from people and it would make them think that, okay, I'm working for myself here. And by working for myself, I'm going to do the best job I possibly can. And, you know, I actually a number of times said to people when they come back to me saying, I don't see any future advancement in this company. There are so many great people above me. I'm not going anywhere here and I'm not earning enough money or whatever. I would say it may be time for you to look somewhere else. And if you do that, I will help you because you're going to come back here someday. I'm going to hire you at a greater level after you've gained experience from the competition. And I did that a bunch of times. Now, those were the good, smart things I did. Everything else I did was uninformed by rhetoric, and I screwed up royally, especially when I managed <laughs> up. I think we've all been there. But you've, you've touched on some really important fundamental principles of management. For my audience, many of you will have heard this before, but if you haven't, a manager has four functions. Hire the best people. So recruit well. Never compromise on recruitment and make recruitment your number one job. It's a constant thing. You should constantly be building your bench so that you've always got great people waiting in the wings. Then get the best out of them. That means that you need to understand what motivates them, what drives them, why they are coming to work, why this job, what it is they want to achieve, the career path, pre-onboard, onboard, train, coach, mentor, and hold to account. And constantly make, put yourself in a position where you understand their personal motivation. And that starts in the recruitment process. Because if you don't understand their motivation, then you cannot remind them of that motivation when you need to tie it to their corporate objectives. And I think what you said there, Jay, was absolutely beautiful, that um, they are working for themselves. Uh, I always tell salespeople, you're privately held, personal services corporation selling your expertise for money. And the minute you let go of that, and then you just become a wage slave, then frankly, you've lost your value to me, to the company, and most importantly, to yourself. The third thing is you need to make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. So that could be technology and systems and tools and whatever else that they need. And the fourth thing is to help clear roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from your senior management and you. And the roadblocks often are their psychological barriers, as well as blocks on deals or they're struggling to get resource. 
but that's where a manager really comes into, into their own. And I can see a lot of what you're saying around rhetoric is being able to position that because in order to clear the path, the internal cell is often five, 10 times harder than the external one. So when you look back and you started to apply rhetoric to managing internal politics, internal resistance, can you give us a couple of anecdotes around that? There are a couple of principles to think about that come directly from rhetoric, but also increasingly come from feels like behavioral economics, you know, which has to do with decision-making, as you know. One of the most important things in, in any setting is to start with cognitive ease. And if you're talking about internal and external sales, cognitive ease, as described by Daniel Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, has to do with a state that I call the Homer Simpson state. That's the state you want people to be in. It's when they are relaxed, when their brains are on autopilot, they're not thinking too hard. Kahneman called that system one. System two is the system you're in when you take a difficult math exam, or at least when I did. You're frowning, you're hunched over, you're tense, and you're thinking at a very high level. Your brain is burning a whole lot of glycogen, and we've evolved to try to get out of that system as fast as possible. System one allows you to persuade more, and the way to do that is to make people feel like they're in power, they're in control, don't sit higher than they are if you want to persuade somebody. You want them smiling, so humor can really help as long as it's not the offensive kind of humor. You want to relax them. When it came, I trained teams for years and still do to win business in the kind of setting where it's a competitive setting where the company brings in teams to compare during the day. You're the finalists. You bring in three or four people and there's like the star chamber. It happens all the time. Bid situations. Exactly. Bid situation. So you've responded to an RFP. You've made it through the first two or three rounds. Now comes the big moment when you make the final sale. I say two things to be like the last things after we go over the details of, of sales. One, to achieve cognitive ease. I say, make their day. At the very least, make this the most fun part of their day. You are going to be so much farther ahead than anybody else. And we would work on ways to do that. The second thing I would say is just before you walk into the room, send love beams out of your eyes. And of course, people like experienced business people would look at me like I could completely gone off my rocker. But I would say, try it. Marcus Tullius Cicero, according to himself, the greatest orator in history, said the eyes are the windows to the soul. They're also the windows of persuasion. So the thing is, before you walk into the room, I do this all the time because I'm, a, I'm an off-the-charts introvert. I will say, I'm going to love these people. And I literally do this. I did this with you, Marcus, by the way, before we signed on. I said, I'm going to love this guy. I've met him before. He's absolutely brilliant and charming. I'm going to love him. And by the way, I'm sending love beams right now. It doesn't work as well over the internet. I'm feeling warm and fluffy. The thing is, when people do that, they come back to me and say, I can't believe this actually worked. There's a whole lot of research that shows that by moving these micro muscles around your eyes, you actually are influencing other parts of your body and your breathing and everything else. And people we, we teach the rule. You get reflected back what you project out. As a species, what we need to understand is our ancestors are typically 
the more introverted, more reserved, more play it safe, risk averse ancestors. Because the ones who weren't would walk past a bush with a brown rock behind it. And they'd think, you know, forget it. And they got eaten by a lion. Our cautious ancestors thought, you know, that might be something. So I'm going to take the long way around. So we've got at least a quarter of a million years of hardwiring that teaches us how to be safe. We've been a tribal species. If you look at the Dunbar number, you know, typically around 150 people, the clan would then split and form new clans because we've got a limited scope. And there's a lot of good research that suggests that the human brain evolved the way it has precisely to handle the volume of social interactions that we have. But it's still a very small, limited number. Now, if you've got 20, 30,000 people in your networks, there's no way you're going to be able to engage on a regular human level with more than 100, 150 of them. So this stuff is hardwired into us. And there is no point trying to fight a quarter of a million years of evolutionary hardwiring. There are techniques you can use to communicate the kind of personal, interpersonal rhetoric on a wider scale. I mean, of course, you're absolutely right. You are only going to have a limited number of true friends and really true followers. That being said, you can express a kind of personal attitude over a larger group by doing things like taking advantage of people's cognitive ease and focusing on your, your virtue, your, your cause of what you stand for, to make people feel as if they're a member of a tribe that's much larger than they would ordinarily want to belong to, and one that has you ideally as the leader. This stuff, by the way, is hard. Not many people can carry it out well, which is why, you know, I say basically, look for a few basic tools here of rhetoric that has to do with your, your expression of your ethos. Don't worry too much about logic. Definitely use facts when you can use them. I'm a big believer in them. But there's a reason why people don't believe in facts. And we're going back to interpersonal tribal relationships here. If people don't trust the source of the facts, they're not going to trust the facts. And if you look at our traditional sources of facts or, or modern sources, they have to do with science, government, and journalism. Of the three things that are most under attack right now, Aristotle knew that this would happen and said the most important thing here is to look to what your audience believes and expects now and work with that. Facts can enter the picture only if they're, they trust them. And they're only going to do that if they trust you. Well, this again plays, and for those of you who are listening, please pay heed. Logic suggests that we should talk about the features and benefits of our product, that people need to know about us and our company. The truth is you absolutely do not need to talk about that, probably often, ever. They don't care. And what Jay's point is, is that if you do not understand how they feel, and uh, Mark Goulston, who's a huge mentor of mine, says, and this, this is human, humanity's number one driver, every human being wants to be heard, to feel felt, and to be understood. And unless you, as the speaker, the salesperson, the manager, understand that, you will fall foul, whether you're using rhetoric as your model, whether you're using TA as a model, or whatever your sales process is. The research on this um, that's coming out of Stanford and Warwick 
is really fascinating. And so for your clients who spend their time in bid situations, the average conversion rate, so just pay heed to this, the average conversion rate on bid situations in terms of uh, the conversion rate from business uh, from buying cycles to actual orders closed is 2.6%. It's 1 in 38.5. Now, you can massively increase your conversion rate and if you can get out of the bid situation. But the way you do that is you have to disrupt their current preference for the status quo. You then have to be able to help them understand the cost of staying stuck and what the cost, that the cost of change is less than and the risk of change is less than staying stuck. And in doing that, you also have to be able to create white space between you, the existing solution that they have, and all of your competition. And then you have to take them through a hero's journey story that tells them that they will be safe from regret and blame later. I love what we've been talking about because it confirms the reason why this research is uh, so true. What are your thoughts? Oh, I love this. I mean, this is what you're talking about is a process of reframing in, in rhetorical terms. I can give you an example of this. One of the biggest sales I ever made was a content program for Walmart. They wanted content for what they called their associates, their, their sales stuff. I mean, the people were actually on the floor making an average of $8.18 an hour at the time. This was maybe 10 years ago. And we had gotten through the bidding rounds and we're down to the finalists. I approached the president of this content company and I said, we don't want to give them this. What they're asking for isn't good for these associates. And what they say they want should be good for the associates. They wanted to entertain the associates and make them excited about working for Walmart. And I said, the only way to do that is to give the associates what they really want. We've done a lot of research on this. And most of the associates weren't that thrilled with working for Walmart, frankly. They would rather do something else, uh, you know. So it was a joke they got paid. Yeah, exactly. And they wished that there were alternatives, but there weren't any. It was the, their last ditch was working at Walmart. I said, we need to reframe this whole issue. We need to go to Walmart and say, this RFP is wrong. You guys have to rewrite the RFP. And otherwise, we're withdrawing. And what we think you should do is, is redefine the whole RFP behind, behind what I call the velvet rope. We have to allow the associates to get beyond that rope. This is going to be content that's reality. It's not just going to be happy videos and interviews with celebrities and all that sort of thing. We want to be able to get these associates, give them a chance to to go into a movie premiere. You guys have the clap to do this. We want them to be the first to be able to listen to a song. We want them, you know, in other words, to do what, to get the VIP treatment that actual VIPs get. They are the lowest class of society. Let's make them feel as if they have an opportunity of entrance to that society. Secondly, I said, once we give them that feeling, we have to make really clear what the steps are to actually get promoted within the company. But, which they already wanted to do, that was part of the RFP. 
But I said, they don't believe that that can happen. Our research showed this. We need to get them beyond the velvet rope first to give them the confidence to know that they have entry into society, that their, their lives can actually be more mobile than the statistics tell them. So miraculously, we made that pitch. They came back and said, you know what? You're right. They rewrote the RFP and they gave us the business. Fabulous. Well, let's take this even further. If you haven't read it yet, there's a fabulous book by Mark Schaefer called Marketing Rebellion. And Mark talks about the most human company wins. Matthew Sweezy, who is the chief futurist for Salesforce, his book, The Context Marketing Revolution, what both of them have identified, and the research is there, and organizations that follow their advice are generating exponential growth in their sales. And it's not the company-generated content that matters. It's the customer-generated content that matters. And having your customers be your marketing department, have your customers be your advocate, and have them feel like they're in control is really key. So if you are not paying attention to what your customers want and are saying and encouraging them to express their opinions, both positive and negative, so that you can learn. And I just interviewed Karen Mangia, who is Salesforce's head of customer experience. And her message is you need to be vulnerable enough to invite the criticism and get your customers talking. Because when your customers do the job for you, they are the most plausible advocate. If you say it, it's just noise and salesman's puff. If an editor or a magazine says it, there's always that question about whether or not you paid for the, uh, the editorial. And experts, again, they have the next level up, but the customer's voice screaming from the rafters about why they buy, why they are loyal, why they recommend you to others, that is where the real power comes. And in the same thing in your organization, make sure your employees are telling the story. Google has a project called Project Oxygen to identify what makes the best managers. And the number one criterion is, would you recommend other people that you know and like to join the team because of the manager? That's great. I love that. I'm writing this down. <laughs> Project Oxygen. So, Jay, we've come to the top of the hour, I'm sad to say, because I could have gone with you for hours on this. Tell me something. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with? Right now, I'm wrestling with writing a book on the art of opportunity, Kairos. I am so far beyond my comfort level on this because it is a field that has not been well-defined. And I'm used to doing research and interviewing people smarter than I am. And at this point, a lot of it is just unknown territory. So what I'm doing is I'm using rhetorical series of rhetorical persuasive devices on myself. And one of them is to think in terms of my time health. I have, uh, as a writer and, and someone who has proposed projects, content projects for years, I've failed more than I've succeeded. And there are times when I just look at it and think, what makes you think that this even riskier project right now of so much time and effort 
is possibly going to succeed when things that weren't nearly as risky failed. And I have to keep looking at, you know, what what the chirotic opportunity is. In other words, I'm using Kairos to write a book on Kairos. There's a lot of internal struggle for doing that, especially when you're alone in a cabin where I am right now, trying to convince myself that I'm capable of doing this. I'll tell you what, though, Marcus, if this succeeds, I've written one bestseller. I've written eight books. One of them was a bestseller. This one is going to be the biggest bestseller ever. You'll see. It'll be the best Christmas ever, too. Do you mind if I offer some gratuitous advice? It's not gratuitous from you. Tell me this. Who's your customer? Who's your intended audience? There are a number of books. Anybody who has ever read Peter Drucker would be an audience for me. A business-oriented audience and one that is interested in sort of innovative new ways of thinking about business. So there are a number. When To do a book proposal, you have to list a competitive set. And I have a book of a, a list of about a dozen books for doing it. You know, what's really remarkable, though, is I go over what the competitive set might be. I don't want to insult this audience, but it is, which is probably a good deal smarter than the, the readers of the books I'm listing. But it is amazing how gullible business readers tend to be. A lot of the research I'm reading is really bad research based on social science with two small populations with none of the research replicated, making assumptions and asking the wrong questions, which gives me hope that maybe people will read my book and believe it. Tell me, what what are the problems that they've been wrapping in duct tape for ages? What are the unknowns that if they don't address them, then they're going to come unstuck, they're going to get bitten? And What are the perennial problems that keep coming back time and time again, no matter what they throw at them? There are several things that I've kind of pinpointed so far to look at this from a negative standpoint. One is, as I described before, time health. The idea that the future consists of threats and and nothing else. That the present is what we've done. The past is a series of successes that prove that we're always right. I spent 10 years working for an Ivy League school where people believe that, well, because we're the Ivy League, we must be great. Whereas I recently did a consulting project for Northwestern University, and they're not, they've never been considered to be the top of the heap. They are rocking it on all levels in terms of management and the way they're selling their brand. They're so far ahead of any Ivy League university, and I've done consulting for all eight Ivy League universities. The second thing is how to extract an opportunity from a time of crisis and how to see a crisis as like the big moment where you can strike. Thirdly, do you have enough information to make a decision? And this is probably the biggest problem of all. When do you know you have enough information? Can you make a decision on the basis of too little information? And I'm looking at all kinds of really interesting research right now where researchers are trying actually to apply data to the amount of information you need under certain circumstances. Like, what if you have only 70% of the information you need? What if you have 80% of the information? And then finally, how do you know time's ripeness? 
is, is this the right time? How, when do you wait? And when do you keep going? And there are more on top of that that have to do with things like, you know, sunk cost and redefining or reframing opportunities and that sort of thing. The number one mistake really seems to revolve around people's acquisition, interpretation, and use of information. By the way, I didn't expect that. Often we don't. Tell me this. What is the intended better future that your audience is seeking? Well, I'm looking at it. One of the things that sort of my brand of writing is to describe things in terms of sort of public events, whether it's politics or business or whatever, and then private as well with personal stories and stories of individuals. So one of the things I like to do is go personal first and then make it applicable to business or a company or politics. So one of the things I think about are when I fail to take advantage of chirotic moments and what caused those failures? Like, how do I, and, and wh- how would, would I have affected a better outcome? So I look at the time when a coworker of mine many, many years ago, this would have been in like 1987, 88, we decided that maybe we shouldn't be using word processors anymore at this magazine I worked in, and we should actually have PCs, personal computers. So we were going to buy IBM PCs. And my managing editor went in and said, there's this grad student at the University of Texas who has made deals all across the country with repair shops. Within 24 hours, he will repair these much cheaper PCs so that nothing can go wrong if you buy them. So we went and we bought some 15 computers from this guy named Michael Dell. My managing editor came back to me and he said, hey, by the way, he's looking for early investors at the $10,000 level. And I said, doesn't this guy still live in a dorm room or something? It's like, I'm not going to invest $10,000 in that. And he said, here's why it might be a good idea to invest in him. He gave me a series of really good reasons. All I needed to do was to extract a little bit more information. I immediately shut that down saying, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not that stupid. Well, guess what my managing editor did? (laughs) He ended up retiring 10 years before me and he lives like a king in Vermont. And he was working for me at the time that he did this. What could I have done to make that better? Now, on the other hand, if you are working within a company, you see an opportunity that may come from an unexpected success or something that's going wrong or an external crisis affecting your company. Are there certain skills that you can do so that your company is going to end up gaining market share instead of losing it? Or are you going to be at a higher level of your company rather than unemployed? Or on the other hand, are you going to get more personal satisfaction out of what you're doing because of the way you're dealing with this moment? In other words, is this a moment of opportunity and do you suit it? The positive outcome to come from that could be an investment or it could be a better life. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. This is fascinating. Uh, I know we sort of hinted at it in the preamble. Have you ever been blindsided and <laughs> where rhetoric could have saved you? You know, actually, I've been more blindsided by the use of rhetoric on me. I mean, if you look at my favorite audience 
educational audience is teachers because they all behave the way they wish their students did. They sit there with their hands folded and smiling and paying attention to everything you say, taking careful notes. The easiest people to sell somebody to is salespeople because they all wish that they could sell as well. And they, so they're much more likely to buy things because they love the sales experience to go well. I think I'm probably the easiest person to persuade because I wish that persuasion would all work as well as I would hope it would. And I, I won't go into it because I know we don't have a lot of time, but my wife, who is a man, she's a fundraiser, by the way, a highly persuasive, extroverted person. She, um, she actually talked me into the opposite vacation of what I wanted for a big anniversary that we were going to celebrate. I wanted to go to Nicaragua to this ecotourism resort back when Nicaragua is doing better than it is right now and back when you could travel. She wanted, without telling me, to go to the rainy, cold Cotswolds of England. <laughs> and she did it using the art of concession. I call it the art of agreeability where you argue without appearing to argue at all. You nod your head, you agree with everything, you acknowledge what the other person is saying, and you gradually reframe the terms a little bit. So I would say, you know, you know, I know how much you love wildlife. She would say, yeah, I love animals. I'd say, you love, you love wildflowers. She'd say, I do love gardens. And she'd gradually shift this conversation over to the point where I found myself agreeing to hike the 110-mile Cotswold Way through sheep meadows. I had to literally throw out my shoes at the end of this vacation. <laughs> that being said, my wife was so happy. It was a great anniversary, and I don't regret it. I mean, no regrets in the morning. That's seduction at its best. <laughs> Very good. Excellent. Well, we could delve into this seduction and selling, but we'll save that for another one. If you had a golden ticket, and you could whisper in the ear of the idiot JH23, what, what choice bit of advice would you give him? I would say, stop working for the brands. I kept thinking that I needed to work my way up through more and more prestigious brands. You can say us. <laughs> yes. I was, I mean, so the thing is that I thought it really wasn't up to who I was. It was what brands I could attach to myself, that prestige, like where, where was my place in the world? And all the time when I was 23, I had plenty of evidence to the contrary, that, that actually the best thing for me to do was to do my best, the best work that I enjoyed. And, you know, if I had known that at the time, it, I didn't end up doing that really until I was 50 years old. And my life just got so much better. And I did so much better work. And I was so much more successful at the same time without seeming to work as hard. Play to your strengths. Do what you love. And don't worry about what's happening now. Understand that if you play to your strengths and you do your best work, that will be what will uh, raise you up. And the more you do, the more, chance, more opportunity you get to do more of your best work and what you love. Yeah, don't worry what's on your business card. Sorry for that. Excellent. So what are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment that you are really being influenced by and you think other people should pay heed to? Do you know one of the things that when we're talking about time health, talking about how to deal with the past, we're all very concerned right now with what's happening publicly. 
with a whole Black Lives Matter thing and, you know, our heritage, on the other hand. I find myself listening to some of the best podcasts. I listen to podcasts every morning when I work out. And, and the best podcast right now, I think of the history podcast, Jill Lepore, if you haven't heard her podcast, The Last Archive, it, where she talks, she tells these wonderful history stories, but also talks about how history is found and interpreted. I think anybody in business ought to look at this because it's how you gather and interpret information, right? The other thing is the podcast Through Line, which talks about what's happening today but it describes it through history. So Jill Lepore, last How do you mark. Spell that? L-E-P-O-R-E. And that's called The Last Archive. And through line, all one word. Through as in, you know, through the hoop at line, L-I-N-E, is another podcast done by these very talented young podcasters. Though I find myself just falling in love with the people and, and the stories they tell and allows me to feel a little calmer about what's happening today, that there truly is nothing new under the sun and everything has a through line to it that spells maybe a better future. Do you know what I'm also doing? This sounds a little nerdy. I'm, re- I'm going back and reading Michel de Montaigne's essays. That man lived in the greatest pandemic the world has ever been in. And at the same time, his country, France, was going through one of the worst civil wars any country has been in between the Protestants and the Catholics. He was a Catholic who was negotiating with Protestants as a diplomat and the mayor of Burgundy, France. At the same time, by the way, he owned a winery that still produces some of the best wine in the world, Chateau de Chem. His essays are the most calming, beautiful essays you'll ever read. And by the way, he invented the essay. Assay is a sort of self-experiment, and that's what he meant them to be. I read them, and I find myself just instantly thinking I'm wiser than I am and feeling calmer about my present and my future. So all of this has to do with my time health. Okay, three recommendations then. Hardcore history. Dan Carlin's History on Fire. Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. And the great courses from Yao to Mao, 4,000 years of Chinese history. What we don't realize is that 3,000 years ago, China had an empire of 1 billion people, which they managed despite the fact they didn't have modern communication or military. And we don't, uh, in the West, with quarterly reporting and capitalism, What we don't understand is that they play the long game. We don't understand how the Chinese will work together collaboratively because they have more of a hive mind and that they feel their contribution needs to be to the community. Whereas in the West, in the Greco-Roman and Western philosophy, we've hailed the individual. At the end of the Korean War, the Americans took three floors of the Hilton, the Chinese delegation rented a five-bedroom house for three years. They knew what they were doing, and they got what they wanted. Kister wrote about that, too. By the way, another interesting thing to do is to look at how the Chinese and when the Chinese screwed up in the greatest moment in history, in the 14th century. They had the largest sailing ships. They ruled the—they had the six largest cities in the world. 
yeah. at the time. And they decided to turn back against this. They literally burned those ships. And if you look at a comparable moment in American history, it's when we, under President Nixon, we decommissioned the Saturn V rocket, the most powerful rocket ever built. We still haven't built a rocket. We're close to it, but we still haven't built a rocket that rivals that yet. And if you look at American technology and all everything from our smartphones to the internet today, it really started with the Apollo program and everything that spun off from that. We burned our ships back then, and we're still trying to recover from that. I love history is so great. I'm so, and I'm glad you mentioned Dan Carlin. I'm a huge fan. Absolutely. Jay, this has been absolutely fascinating. I'd love to have you back. Please do. You are such a great interview because I find that I learn more from you than all that I spout from your questions. Oh, no, I'm sure this will be one of my most popular or our most popular episodes. It's just been an absolute delight, and I have learned so much. Thank you. How can people get hold of you? The easiest way is just through my website, jheinrichs.com. That's J-A-Y-Heinrichs.com. And that's H-E-I-N-R-I-C-H-S.com. You got it. And I'm at all the fine social media places at Jay Heinrichs, J-A-Y Heinrichs. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. Jay Heinrichs, thank you very much. My pleasure, Marcus. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you believe that you would be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please email me at marcuscauchy at me.com or m-c-a-u-c-h-i at sandler.com. And if you'd like a couple of chapters from Jay's fantastic book, Thanks for Arguing, then comment on the LinkedIn post or on the podcast post. And uh, the best comments, the best 20, we will give copies of Jay's chapters too. So there's a little bit of a competition. And let's say the competition finishes on the 17th of September, 2020. So bye-bye, happy selling, stay safe.